Father, we thank you for this amazing redemption, this amazing love, this irrational love you have towards us, your kids. Father, I pray today as we delve into the wisdom literature, into your word, as we explore what your word has to say about who you are and how you want to make yourself known to us. Lord, may we understand these profound implications, Lord, in a culture that has turned their back on you. And Lord, we are suffering grievous consequences. Lord, I pray today that we may begin to understand the power of these rebellious ideas that now are having an enormous ramification and impact in our culture. Lord, I pray today that we would think like you think, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. In his provocatively titled book, From Darwin to Hitler, historian Richard Weikar examines the revolutionary impact Darwinism had on the ethics and morality of social thinkers in Nazi Germany. Now, when I talk about Darwinism, for, I, I, I think we all know about Darwin. But if we don't, let me just explain something to you. That Charles Darwin wrote a book, The Origin of the Species, in the 19th century. It's had a huge ramification. And many people have embraced what we will call naturalism, which is a movement away from God. And because Darwin's influence was so strong that... As we know a little bit about history, and for those of you that may not know anything about history, I would Google this, look up Nazism. It goes all the way back to Germany in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and the great havoc this political ideology had upon Europe and affected the entire world. Now, it says, believing that Darwinism had overturned any sense of the sanctity of life which means the sacredness of life. And evolutionary fitness. Remember Darwin's, you know, the strongest survive. Especially in terms of intelligence and health became the highest arbiter of morality within the Nazi thinking. Weinkart concludes that Darwinism played a strategic role not only in the rise of euthanasia. Now how many know what euthanasia is? Euthanasia is assisting people to die. And by the way, is that an issue in our culture at this moment? Matter of fact, I was just reading in the newspaper this week, young people want to be involved in helping propagate and pass these laws so that we can help people die. We can assist them and they can have what we call assisted suicides. Now, Weinkart here concludes that Darwinism played a strategic role. That's the underlying foundation in the rise of euthanasia, infanticide, which is the killing of children, abortion, which is the killing of unborn children, and racial extermination, which, you know, we talk about genocide. How many know that six million Jews died in concentration camps because of this ideology that the Nazis embraced? And the contention that Hitler built his views on Darwinian principle raises one of the most important truths that a mind can comprehend. Simply, ideas have consequences. And we need to understand this, that our culture today is primarily being governed by this Darwinian concept. How many know that's true? That's the way it is. And so, 
you know, I'm going to just say it to us so we get it straight. You know, some of us shudder at what happened during World War II. Some of us think to ourselves, these Nazis were these cruel, evil people, right? We's them. We's them. I mean, that may not be good grammar, but that's reality. We have embraced the exact same ideology. And we are moving down exactly the very same track. We need to understand this. You know, this is reality, folks. This is, you know, how did we get here, people are wondering. Good question. While many people in our current society believe this concept of evolution, one of its corresponding concept of the survival of the fittest, they've moved away from the sanctity of life, and they have rejected God as even anybody that's remotely in their thinking, and now even rejected the idea that there could even be an intelligent designer of our world. So this naturalistic and scientific explanation is now considered to be the only reasonable and intelligent position that people have in life. And if you are to challenge or doubt that, you will be considered stupid, dangerous, insane, and even wicked. Now you say, where are you getting all this stuff from? Well, let me give you a couple of people And I'm going to be quoting some atheists today. So that does not mean that I agree with them, but I'm just telling you this is how people are thinking and this is becoming the prevailing mood. You know, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett would argue vehemently for this position. In Dennett's book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, he writes, to put it bluntly but fairly, anyone today who doubts, even has little doubt, that the variety of life on this planet was produced by a process of evolution is simply ignorant inexcusably ignorant. So if you don't agree with him, he's saying you're ignorant. Inexcusably ignorant. How do you like that? This is a rational human being talking like this. Richard Dawkins wrote in 1989 in the New York Times, he wrote a book review that said it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked but I'd rather not consider that. That's pretty strong language. So now, how open are these kinds of people to hearing a position that would even challenge their way of thinking? Not that open. Let me quote another atheist. Now, I'm not even quoting a Christian. Another atheist comes along and now has a few questions, and he writes a book. Richard Milton, he's an atheist, published a book, Shattering the Myth, of Darwinism, responded by most, his response by most in the scientific community actually stunned him. He was really not ready for this response. As he wrote it, I expected to have aroused controversy because it reports on scientific research that is it in itself controversial because it deals with Darwinianism, always a touchy subject with the biological establishment. What I did not expect was that, you know, even though I was a, a report, you know, kind of a, an inquisitive reporter, I did not expect the contrary, con- I, I did expect, this is what his expectation was, to be conducted at a rational level. That people would rightly demand to inspect my evidence more closely, to question me about the correctness of this or that fact, but to my horror, I found that instead of challenging me, orthodox scientists simply wrote me off. Richard Dawkins at Oxford University wrote his review 
in the New Statesman magazine, lest the, the commission would actually bring someone else to write and actually take his work seriously, Dawkins devoted two-thirds of his review to attacking my British publisher, Fourth Estate, for their irresponsibility and daring to accept a book that would criticize Darwinism. And the, remind, and the remainder, one-third, assassinating my own personal character. Now, what do you think of that? doesn't even focus on the material. He's just, you know, trying to put this person down. Dawkins is employed at one of Britain's most prestigious universities and is responsible for the education of future generations of students. And yet, this is not the language of a responsible scientist and teacher. Now, this is written by Milton. He says, it is the language of a religious fundamentalist whose faith has been profaned. In other words, what he's saying is Dawkins is behaving like he is a religious person and his religion's been attacked. He's not dealing with this in a scientific way whatsoever. That's what shocked, you know, Milton. Nature magazine, probably the most highly respected scientific magazine in the world, scented blood and joined in the frenzy. These intemperate responses betoke more than a squabble between an inquisitive journalist and a couple of reactionary academics. They raise a number of important questions of general public interest. Who do you have to be to have a voice about scientific research on which large sums of public money are being spent? In other words, who gets to challenge this stuff? Who decides in what form or what mechanism can the voice of dissent ever be heard in science? Now, when I grew up, science was, you know, basically you challenged things, you created a hypothesis, you challenged it if it proved to be good. You know, later on somebody challenged it, that's fine. That's because you're searching for the truth. But folks today, people are not searching for the truth. They have a closed mind. Now, they always say people that, like us have a closed mind. I would call this pretty close-minded. As a matter of fact, the reason why Milton first wrote was because many in the scientific community who disagreed with Darwinism and some of these positions are afraid to do so because they're afraid for their, their, their uh, actual jobs, their, their sense of you know, esteem and all the rest of it. And he said, these people were appealing to me to actually break out of the box and say something because a lot of these people are finding and making discoveries that do not support Darwin's position. They have sought to publicize these discoveries in journals such as Nature but have been universally rejected because their discoveries are anti-Darwinian in implication and hence counter to the ruling ideology in the life sciences. And so... They have appealed to me, a non-scientist. They helped them gain a measure of publicity. Wow, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Now, why do I bring all of this up? Because I think the Bible wants to speak to these issues. I think the Bible does speak to these issues. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks very clearly to these issues. It speaks about matter. It speaks about origins. It speaks about who God is. And these are important questions in our day because if we reject this, then we end up embracing this ideology that has led away from the sanctity of life and has led to many atrocities in the human equation. That's why this is an important conversation. That's why we need to go back to the scriptures. We need to look at this wisdom literature, these ancient writers who after generation upon generation have come to certain understandings. And so we're turning here to the psalmists who... As a matter of fact, 
doesn't even try to prove the existence of God, but actually states that not only does God exist, but everything about this world screams to us of his amazing existence. And so today we're going to look at two major means of God making himself known to us. And the first one is simply through creation. You know, the world in which we live is actually a declaration of the existence of Almighty God. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Isn't that amazing? Then it goes on to say, Day after day they pour forth speech. Now you have to remember, this literature is poetic, right? This is not a scholarly treatise. This is a poetic book that is explaining, number one, the existence of God, and that God's created world is actually declaring that God exists. And that he's speaking to us, not in a, he's not communicating with words. He's communicating by demonstrating his glory and his power. It says, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where, they are, where their voice is not heard. In other words, the stars, the moon, the sun, all of the things that we're witnessing are all de- declaring, number one, the glory of God and the very existence and power of God. You know, when you look at our world, it's highly complex. Have you ever thought about it? If the sun was a little further, I mean, if the earth was a little further away from the earth, we wouldn't be able to survive. You know, if the sun was a little closer to us, we'd fry. I mean, we're at the perfect distance. Matter of fact, this is one of the only places in the universe that we know of. So far, this is the only place we know of that actually life can be sustained. That's an amazing thing. You know, then you think you look at the complexities of our world today. You know, we didn't understand years ago about DNA, but you know, DNA now, they're doing all kinds of studies, and because of these kinds of studies, people in science are beginning to say, listen, this is so complicated. You know, I wish I had some clips to show you the complexity of DNA. You'd be, sh- you'd be shocked. It is extremely complicated. God has created everything in its place and in its order. It's an amazing world in which we live. Our bodies are an amazing miracle. The way they function and work, you know, all about us. It's, it's, you're just actually, all of us are walking miracles. You are more sophisticated than any human computer that's ever been created. We are a marvel. It's, it's amazing what God has created. And so the the psalmist makes this amazing declaration. I'm convinced that true science actually was originated by Christians. When you study history, you'll find out that Christians understood the nature of God's orderliness and laws and were able to study these things and had confidence in their findings. It's amazing. You know, they always... You know, the critics of the Christian church always point out a few, you know, differences between the church and scientists. But let me point out, most of the people that were doing the scientific work, most of them, almost all of them were Christians. You know, the ancients, many of them, because this revelation was not as clear as it could have been, began to worship the creation rather than the creator. And that's true. And here we find, right here in the very beginning in the book of Genesis, Rather than naming the constellations, rather than speaking of the sun and moon, it's interesting how the writer frames it in in his uh, presentation in Genesis chapter 1. It says, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. But lest we think that we have advanced beyond the ancient thinking, 
that, you know, we don't worship these heavenly bodies. Let me point out to us, there are people today worshiping the heavenly bodies. There are people today believing that the way the planets line up and the stars shape up actually determine, are, are deterministic of how people's lives will be lived out. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? That's the nature of astrology. And if you don't think astrology is popular in our world, go to any major newspaper, open it up, and I can guarantee you, you're going to find a page called horoscopes. And what a horoscope is, it's, you know, people looked up their birthday, and then they determine under 12 signs where they fit in. And then they read this stuff as if this is the determining factor of how their life is going to be lived that day based on how the stars and planets are lining up. Now let me just tell you something, how crazy that really is. That's, that's actually a deviation from what God intends for human beings and actually warns against that in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt. In other words, when you and I do not worship the creator, we begin to worship creation. And the moment we begin to worship creation, and I'm going to talk about the various ways we do that, what happens is that we begin to become corrupted. And then it says, we become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. That's human, human secularism, by the way. That's a good description of it. Or like any animal on earth or bird that flies in the sky or any creature that moves along the ground or fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed in bowing down to them and worshiping them. That's a problem. Don't do that, it says. And so what God is forbidding is some of the things that people get into today. But you know, you say, well, thankfully I'm not involved in that, Pastor. But you know, I look around our world today and I notice many people worship the creator, I'm sorry, the creation rather than the creator. We have people called animists. How many know what an animist is? People that are animistic in their worship. What these people are doing is they worship, you know, all kinds of things like trees, you know, they'll worship uh, because they believe there's a spirit animating these, these different parts of the world. And so there's a lot of religions that are animistic in their understanding. They believe that there's a spirit that's behind these elements. And there's other expressions of, you know, people who are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. There's a, this is an over uh, title of what people do, but there's a thing called pantheism. How many have ever heard of pantheism before? Pantheism is the religion where you believe that God is everything and everything is God. Okay? And so that everything is God. And there's many different expressions of it. One of them I actually run into quite oftenly, often when I go to India. Hinduism is actually pantheism. And that's why Hindus worship 330 million gods. Everything is a god. And you worship these gods, and you placate these gods, and that's what they do. And you got, you know, almost one-seventh of the earth's population are Hindus, and they're worshiping these gods. That's interesting. And yet, that's a deviation from what God talked about here in Scripture. Some of you, us are saying, yeah, but we're in the West, Pastor. We're not involved in Hinduism. Don't be so quick to say that, because Hinduism has been exported to the West. And you know what it's called in the West? The New Age. That's what the New Age is. The New Age is just Hinduism with a new label. And so you go to the bookstores today and you go down into the religious section and you're going to find a whole, I mean, you're going to be shocked. I went to chapters here a few years ago and they had over 400 New Age books. 
How many are kind of going, wow. I mean, chapters is not going to stock 400 books unless they think they're going to sell them. That just tells me there's a lot of people living in the city of Red Deer who are embracing new age philosophy and even there are Christians who have crossed the line and have now begun to worship the creation rather than the creator. And the Apostle Paul warns against some of these things. But then you say, well, listen, we don't worship any of those things. We're atheists. Atheists, the word a in the Greek language means no. And so atheism is there's no God. There's no personal God. There's no knowing. Of, you know, they just don't believe in God. And yet the scriptures describe that person this way in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is an atheist. That's what the, that's what the psalmist is telling us. In other words, there was a concern that people would you know, deviate to atheism. Gerhard von Rad writes regarding the meaning of the term fool. He says the, the fool was not simply an imbecile, not somebody that was stupid, but a man who resisted a truth which presented itself to him in creation. In other words, there was a truth that they were suppressing, and that because of that, the Bible says they were a fool because they did not trust in an order which would be beneficial for him, but which now turns against him. What's happening? He's turning away from the grace of God. He's turning away from the kindnesses of God. He's turning away from the ordered good things of God so he can go his own way, which is a very unwise decision. So what happens to people who suppress the truth? Listen to what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 1. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So how do people suppress truth? What is it that suppresses the truth? Wickedness. So the issue is not intellectual. The issue is moral. And that's why it's very difficult when you're making a presentation to somebody who is suppressing the truth because their issue is not intellectual. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to continue to perpetuate an immoral lifestyle. They want to be accountable to nobody. In other words, they want to be their own God. They don't want to have to be accountable to a God, especially the God of the Bible who actually has morality and will hold us accountable for our behavior. It says, since what may be known about God is plain, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? So what may be known about God is plain to them. How was it plain to them? Well, he goes on to describe it because God has made it plain to them. And in which way is that? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And what all that simply means, if you don't quite understand what Paul's saying here, is that because there's a world in which we're looking at, that is a reflection of the existence of Almighty God. How did all of this get here? That's what he's talking about. And you have to answer that question. And so a lot of people today, are, that's why they're saying, well, I, don't, I, don't, I have to believe that there's no creation. I have to believe in something. So I go to this naturalism. And naturalism is basically saying, listen, it just came out of, out of uh, nothing, basically. That's basically the, the, the presentation. Now, Thomas Schreiner says regarding this text in Romans, he says, the knowledge of God here." is not a saving knowledge. It's just a knowledge that God exists, okay? That's the difference. So what is Paul really trying to get across here? 
that God is revealing himself through what is seen. Alvin Plantinka writes in response to those who reject God as the primary source of creation, these atheists, people like Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett, he goes on and says this, any impersonal, uh, sorry, any impersonal, unreflective, robotic, mindless little scrap of molecular machinery is the ultimate basis of all the agency, enhanced meaning, enhanced consciousness in the universe. That's what he believes. So what he's basically saying is, he believes that, you know, it's just random and it just happened to turn out this way. And don't, don't come up with purposes, don't come up with design, don't come up with any of that, right? He's just telling you. This is his viewpoint of how the world came into being. Does everybody get it? So now, Plantinka, who's a philosopher, and he teaches at Notre Dame, he says this. You know, he says, think about this. Think about what this guy's saying. He says, life itself originated just by the way of the regularities of physics and chemistry through a sort of natural selection, an undirected natural selection has produced. Now he's going to make fun of this. He says, think of what it's produced. Language, thought, artistic, morality, religious, and intellectual proclivities. In other words, we just happen to come up with this stuff. You know? Yeah, it's coming out of random molecules. And then he says, now, 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 he says this. This is interesting. Now, many atheists and others have found these claims at least extremely doubtful. Some people are having a hard time with this. And especially when you're working with this stuff, you know, and you're in the laboratory and you're taking a look at DNA and you're kind of going, wow, this is so intricate. I mean, you know, go on your, your, uh, the internet and go look up DNA and start studying that stuff. And you're going to be shocked at how complex that is. It's going to blow you away. It says here, they found these things doubtful. Some have found them preposterous. I mean, how can you believe this stuff, right? And yet if you question these people, they get vehement. They get angry. Is it really so much as possible that language, say, or consciousness, or the ability to compose great music, or to think up even the idea of natural selection should have been produced by mindless processes of this sort? This is an ambitious claim. That mind and life and all of its varieties have come to be in this unguided fashion is, of course, inconsistent with Christian belief as well as other kinds of theistic belief. For according to Christians and other theists, God has designed and created the world. He intended that it take a certain form, and then he caused it to take that form. That's how it came into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God determined, and then God did it. In other words, there is a purpose to what God is doing. We now come to one of the most important elements in God's creation, especially as we relate to this planet, is the sun. And the psalmist picks up on this in verse 4. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. He's using figurative language, okay? It's like the, the tent goes, goes to sleep at night, kind of the ancient idea. Where does the sun go? You know, we, we know the sun, you know, we're revolving around the sun. And by the way, you know, all these people that think that Christians thought the earth was, was flat, that's wrong. Because you would have never navigated, you know, people were smarter than that. We have really discredited the ancient peoples in our thinking. But let me just say that he's talking now in poetic language. He said the sun is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. 
Now you've got to think about it. This is, this is more of an ancient way of getting married. There's an arranged marriage and the bridegroom is coming to get his bride. There's a sense of rejoicing at this moment. And by the way, when people who lived in an ancient time finally saw the sun rise, that was a great moment. Because they didn't live with the kind of elect- electrical power we have today. I want you to think back to kerosene lamps and little candles. You know, that's pretty rough. And so, you know, most of life was, you know, you're always looking forward to the daytime. You're always looking forward to the warmth of the sun, right? It says it rises on one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. That's an important point. In other words, the sun has an amazing effect and influence on our world. Isn't that true? We're all affected by its heat, he says. So, when you think about the sun, it's really the key to earthly life. How many know that's true? If we did not have the sun, we'd be in big time trouble. It could, we could not sustain life on this planet. Now, let me move on and say this, that nature alone cannot communicate exactly everything God wants to say to us. It just basically tells us God's in existence, and God is glorious, and God is powerful. But it doesn't tell you and I how to deal with our fallenness and our brokenness. It doesn't communicate that message to us. It doesn't explain to us how God really loves us and wants to redeem us from our brokenness. So now we have the second great movement here or means of God revealing himself to us and it's found through his word. We're immediately shown the value or important of God's message. Look at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect. Why? King James says it converts the soul. NIV says it revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. You can put your confidence in these words, and I'll tell you something, they will not disappoint. They're they're real. It makes the soul wise. It, It helps people that don't know, lack understanding, actually gain wisdom and understanding. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Isn't that great? That we can read God's word and it can bring joy into our lives. It gives light to the eyes. In other words, it gives us understanding. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold. Think about it. The most precious Metal, especially to the ancients, was gold. God's word is more precious than gold. It's actually even sweeter than what the ancients would consider their sweetener, honey itself, even from the honeycomb. The word of God is so beautiful because it's communicating what? It's communicating God's purposes and will to us. But you know, when we think about God's word, what comes to our mind? We think of, like, you know, in English, we think of 26 little letters. We think of the actual physical words, don't we? But I want you to think of it a little differently. I'm going to move your thinking just for a moment. Think about it this way. In the past, how did God speak to humanity? Well, he spoke through his spokespeople. He spoke through prophets. God made his will and mind known through human beings, and those human beings were inspired of God, and they wrote them down. God was speaking through people, right? Powerful. And then he spoke uh, at many, in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, how has God spoken to us? Through his son. But who is the son? Well, yeah, it's Jesus. But listen what it says about him. Who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So who is the creator of the universe? Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. If you're the exact representation of God, who are you? The right answer is you're God. Right? And then it says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
And after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what are we learning from this text? We're learning that God himself spoke to us. Is that, you know, prophets are great, but to have God speak is even better, I think. Now, we know that those words are inspired by God, but these are actually God words. These are the word of God, and John says it this way, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and it says he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made that has been made, and the word became flesh. Wow. And it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what am I trying to say to us today? Well, I'll I'll let C.S. Lewis say it. He says, it is Christ himself and not the Bible who is the true word of God. And you know when the Pharisees came along and were criticizing and they were stumping the Bible and saying this is what it means? Just think of how ridiculous what they were doing. They're talking to Jesus. And Jesus says, excuse me, everything you're reading is talking about me. I am the true word. Okay? Why am I saying all of this? Because sometimes as Christians, we can, have, we can almost become idolatrous regarding the Scripture. The Scripture is designed to bring us to a place. The Scripture, the logo, the Torah, the law, was designed as a schoolmaster to bring us to where? I'm quoting Colossians. Uh, Galatians, sorry, says the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And I love the way Lewis says, he says, you know, the Bible read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers will bring us to him, who? Jesus, will bring us to Christ. And isn't it amazing when you and I start reading the scriptures, what's really designed to happen is that you and I are to be brought to Jesus, that you and I are to come to him, that you and I are to experience him. Wow. That really, this fear of God is really this, this, the beginning of wisdom is actually that you and I would come to Jesus, that we would experience him because he is our wisdom. He is our sanctification. He's the one that's doing the work in our lives. It says here, but how does this word affect us? Well, it revives, it converts, gives us wisdom, brings joy, gives understanding, but it does something even beyond that. It penetrates into our lives. Isn't it amazing? Listen to this, verse 11. For by them is your servant warned. Do you think we have to be warned once in a while? How many, I want to write a book. I'm I'm, I'm thinking about it. My opening words are going to go something like this. How many of you would like to have all the knowledge and wisdom that you've gained over a lifetime of living and then take all that information and put it inside your body when you were a little child? How many think you might have a few advantages? Anybody think you might have a few advantages? Some of you say, I like that option. But I'm going to say something to you that's even more profound. If you and I would go to the Word of God, we'd go to this like this wisdom literature, we'd start reading like the Proverbs and the Psalms, what we would discover is actually you have all the wisdoms of many generations right there for you, and they're already telling you what you should or should not do. They're telling you what God is like. They're warning you what not to do and what to do. Wow. It says, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But then it says, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Wow. You know, I love this. We think we're smart. 
1955, two guys put together a thing called the Jahari window. I was reading about it this morning. It was really fascinating. It was actually created by two guys, one named Joseph Luff and the other Harrington Ingham. Harrington goes by Harry. Jahari is really Joe and Harry put together, Jahari window. Really brilliant, right? It always sounds, a lot, sounds more sophisticated if you just say Jahari window. You know, but here's what you need to know. And I thought this was so fascinating. Here's the Jahari window. Everybody see this? Ah, what I know about myself and what others know about me, that's the arena we're living and we're sharing. One window. There's four windows. Then there's what I know about myself that others don't know. That's kind of like a facade. That means that's the hidden part of me that only I know and you, nobody else sees. And then there's this part that's not known to myself, but others see me. Those are called the blind spots. Do we have blind spots? Oh, yeah, we got a good chunk of them right here. But this is the scary one. This is the really scary one. Not known to self, not known to others. The unknown. Now, this may shock you, but half of us, half of what we're about, we don't even know. We don't even know about ourselves. Now, why is this important? I've been a Christian a long time, and I'm going to tell you what I've seen. And you, some of you have witnessed this. I've seen people walking with God, then they're not walking with God. I go, what happened to them? There was something inside of them that was unhealthy. And it may not even have been known to them. Is that scary? That, that does bother me a little bit. Because there's already a good chunk that, you know, Patty can point out things about me that are wrong. She can go talk to her. He goes, oh, this is wrong with him. This is wrong with him. I mean, she's been married to me for 37 years. That's pretty easy to do, right? But you know what? What's really scary to me is you, you can't even see these parts, and nor can I. Only God is seeing this part. Is that scary or what? And so I love this prayer. It says, it says who can discern his errors? In other words, who can see this blind stuff? Can't do it. Forgive my hidden faults. Wow, God. Now, I'm going to say something I think is so encouraging. I remember the day, Andrea, you were born. Actually, the doctor gave you to me. I felt, Patty finally said, could you please give me that baby? You know. <laughs> you know what? It was, it was an instant love affair. I just picked you up, looked at you, and I went, how many, how many dads, you were there when your child was born? Just raise your hand. When you were holding that child, maybe you got it after the mother. I got it before. <laughs> You're looking at that child, you go, this is a miracle. First thought that goes in your mind. How many guys? This is an amazing miracle. And then the second thought is, I love you. I have this irrational love towards this person who has never done good or evil towards me. Anybody relate to this? It's irrational. And you know what? I was a youth pastor for a while. And I discovered something as a youth pastor. I didn't have kids then. Parents have irrational love towards their kids. And that's a very dangerous job. Because you don't want to cross the parents. Because, you know, if you said something, you know, you always have to figure out where the parents are at before you could really talk to them about their kids, you know, because they are not rational. Parents are not rational when it comes to their kids. That's just been my experience. Where do we come up with this irrational love? God, can I just tell you, God loves you. He loves you with such an irrational love 
And I was reading this morning in the book of Hosea. If you know the story, he's a prophet. God says, your wife's going to cheat on you. His wife was unfaithful to him. And God used his personal experience to teach him how God felt about the unfaithfulness of his people towards him, towards God. And then he says something, you know, your wife's committed adultery. What was the law in the Old Testament for adulterers? You stone them to death. But you know, listen to what God does. God is going to trump his law of judgment by showing mercy. He says to Hosea, I want you to go back and restore your wife to yourself. I want you to buy her back from the slave market. Can you imagine? And God says to Hosea, that's what I'm going to do to my people. I am going to forgive them their sins and restore them to myself because I am in love with them in spite of themselves. How many go, is this amazing? Can I tell us, I'm telling me and I'm telling you, God's love for us is so irrational that he can see our unknown and our blind spots and we can't, and he says, I love you anyways. How many go, I'm impressed with God. You know my prayer with today was? Number two things, you'd get a wow factor. Like, wow, God really does love me. And number two, you would realize God's amazing, irrational love for you, that it would transform you, that you would begin to say, you know what, for me to do my own thing, just think about how unwise that is. You know, we can sit down here as Christians and say, oh, I really like God's will. I really agree with God's will, but I've discovered one thing. We all agree with it until it bumps up to what we want. Then we have a little struggle. Anybody relate to this? There's a little wrestling match going on between what I want and what God wants me to do. If you've never bumped up to this, I'm going to pray for you today because I'm concerned that you're even a believer because it's going to happen. I guarantee you're going to have this problem. And you have to make a decision. And I'm trying to tell you today that if you will do God's will, you will discover that God loved you more than you love yourself. God's smarter than you are and he knows what's best for you. Amen? We're going to stand. I want to just read these last few verses. Listen to how he closes it. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. By the way, in the Old Testament, there was no forgiveness for willful sins. Aren't you glad God forgives us even for willful sins? Otherwise, we'd be in big, bad shape. It says, may they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a great note. Aren't you glad God is not only a creator, God is a redeemer. And there's not one of us in this room that can say, I don't need his redemption. There's not one of us in this room that could say, I don't need his love. We all need it. What I'm going to ask us to do right now is we're going to pray together. We're going to pray as a congregation. We're going to lift our hands to God like I'm doing right now, and I'll tell you why. Because right now inside of you and inside of me, there are things that we don't even know exist. We don't even know it. And you know why I know that this is true? Because every once in a while we have an incident in our life and you go, I didn't expect this was going to come out of me. You've never, anybody had that experience? I'm a little surprised at myself. I am not happy with myself. 
Anybody have that experience? Yeah, it can happen. And so we're going to lift our hands to God and we're going to say, Lord, I cannot discern my error. I'm a little more messed up than I thought today. That's, bad. That's the bad news part. I'm a little more messed up than I thought. But the good news part is you still love me. And you're willing to forgive me. You're willing to come today and cleanse me. Aren't you glad? You know, we can, we can confess known sin. But it's really hard. To, you know, I, I don't normally do this to say to God, Lord, I'm confessing my unknown sin. But it's there. Every day I'm messing up. You know, maybe I've been short-tempered or maybe I've been, you know, prideful or I've had the wrong thought or desire. It's not pleasing to God. It's not going to bring glory to his name. I've been tempted, Lord. All of these things going on. Who knows what they all are? But Lord, today we bring these hidden faults to you. We lift them up before you because we know that you are the lover of our soul and we know today you are a great redeemer and your love towards us is irrational. And Lord, I pray today as we confess our need for you that we will now receive your amazing forgiveness and grace, that we will walk in greater humility that we will not think of ourselves more highly than we should. That we will recognize, oh Lord, that when you forgive us, you cleanse us. And so right now we release even the things that we know we're messed up with. We're, mess, we're releasing even the areas in our lives where we know we're a mess and we can't forgive ourselves, but today we're going to forgive ourselves because you have done it, and who are we to think that we're greater than you? That's an expression of pride. And we're going to release that right now. We're going to receive your full forgiveness today, Father, and your full cleansing in our lives. And we thank you for this amazing what I would consider an irrational love, but it's the way you are. You are love itself. And Lord, help us, I pray, this day and the days forward that we will walk in your will and in your ways, O oh God, and not make excuses for ourselves. But we will acknowledge our need to do your will, which is revealed to us in your word. And Father, when we come to your word, Lord, may we see more than just mere letters, but may we be introduced to your divine presence. And may it impact us, and may it shape us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave.